content warning for all listeners. The following episode contains murder and violence, sexual assault, and a whole lot of death. This may be triggering to some listeners, and I ask that you please just skip this episode if you find any of this triggering. What is it about this hotel that resides in downtown LA that earned it the nickname, The Deadliest Hotel? From serial killers to a missing traveler, these hotel walls have seen true tales of horror. Join me as we book a stay at the infamous Cecil Hotel and uncover some of its dark and disturbing history. Welcome to Strangely. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Strangely Podcast. It feels so great to be bringing out another episode. Finally, it's been over a month, I know. But, you know, I've had other projects in the works that I have been trying to work on and also get this podcast done as well. But now that I also have a content strategy in place, I can focus on the podcast a lot more as well as social media and the other projects that I have been looking into as well. I have really packed a lot into this episode and I'm thinking that it's gonna have to be a two-parter as well. I'd like to get some guests in on the second part and they can give their theories on the stories that are in this one. I'm not gonna give too much away at the moment but yeah I want to get some guests on and really engage in a conversation about this topic because it is pretty heavy. Also, happy 4th of July to anyone in the States. This episode will come out the day after the 4th of July, but hey, better late than never, right? So now let's get on with the show. If you are ready, then I am ready. Here we go. The Cecil Hotel was built as a middle-class hotel. It quickly became a victim of circumstance due to the depression and its location. With the hustle and bustle of growing Los Angeles, the hotel's location close to the railway and cheap rates brought it a lot of business from people coming into the city. It wasn't much on the luxurious side apart from the marbled lobby, but once the depression hit, the hotel really started its decline into disarray. In the years after the Cecil opened, New, more luxurious hotels were constructed, such as the Hollywood Roosevelt, and that left the Cecil as an afterthought in the rough area of the city. Fast forward to the 1980s, Skid Row was pretty much lawless, and the Cecil Hotel was the place where people turned a blind eye to the bad that was happening in and around it. Drugs, murders, rapes, name it, and it fucking happened at this place. It was known as the place where very bad things happen, as well as some other fitting nicknames such as the suicide, and the place where serial killers stay. It became a budget hotel slash hostel, and a rooming house that attracted an unseemly variety of drug dealers, sex workers, occasionally homeless, criminals, serial killers, and travelers wanting a cheap stay. A former resident at the hotel said that when he stayed there during the 80s and early 90s, 
that he would never go past the sixth floor because that is where people would get killed. The Hotel Cecil, known for its low daily, weekly rates and 700 rooms, became a place of terror. Checking into this hotel could mean you booked a permanent stay. The Cecil had a reputation as a place where people go to kill themselves. It was the place that you went to when you were at the end of your rope and just need a way out. The hotel is known to some as the suicide. At least 80 suicides have happened at the hotel, but there have been so many deaths that it's hard to get an exact number on the suicides, murders, and accidents. The first death at the hotel occurred on January 22, 1927. Percy Orman Cook was unable to reconcile with his wife and his son and shot himself in his room at the hotel. Then in 1931, W.K. Norton from Manhattan Beach checked into the Cecil Hotel under the name James Willis. On the 19th of November, he was found dead in his room after taking poison capsules. Benjamin Doddick, aged 25, was found in his room dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head in September of 1934. Julia Moore killed herself on February 11, 1962, leaving a bus ticket from St. Louis and 59 cents. Now, this one is crazy. On October 12, 1962, Pauline Otten had an argument with her estranged husband, then jumped from her window, not only killing herself, but a 65-year-old man that was walking on the sidewalk down below. And those are just a few of the reported suicides that have taken place at the hotel. What is hard is that some of these are JDs and we will never know who these people really were. As you have probably come to figure out, this is no ordinary hotel. It attracted a lot of criminals and serial killers with its location and cheap rates. Murderers stayed here and a lot of people were killed within these walls. The hotel has seen a lot of bloodshed over the years, but I don't think that it has seen enough because it continued to happen. First up on the list of serial killers is Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. I'm not going to go too much in Richard Ramirez's story. I will just go over briefly about his time at the hotel. Richard was a resident of Skid Row. His crimes took place from April of 1984 to 1985 when he was finally caught by civilians that beat the shit out of him before cops could step in. Ramirez stayed at the Cecil Hotel during the end of his crimes. He would leave and return to the hotel covered in blood. Ramirez would strip down to his blood-stained underwear and ditch his clothes in the alley dumpster, then return to his room on the 14th floor. Ramirez was convicted of killing 13 women, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. However, it goes unknown if he ever murdered anyone inside the hotel. His room fee was only $14 a night, and the area and hotel allowed him to pretty much go unnoticed. At least half, if not all of his crimes, took place while he was staying at the hotel. He would leave pentagrams drawn on his victims with lipstick as his signature calling card, and during one of his appearances in court, he held up his hand with a pentagram drawn on it and said, Hail Satan. Next up is Jack Unterweger. In 1974 in Austria, Jack Unterweger was sentenced to prison for raping and killing a young woman. After he was released in 1990, women were going missing and found murdered. 
Then in 1991, he came to L.A. claiming to be a journalist doing a piece on the crime and prostitution in Skid Row. He did ride-alongs with the LAPD to see these locations where this all took place. Well, then Jack was accused of killing three prostitutes while staying at the hotel. Oddly, a crime journalist checks into the Cecil Hotel possibly trying to get close to their subjects and further reenacts crimes by a notorious serial killer that also stayed there. Some say that Jack Unterweger was trying to reenact the crimes of Richard Ramirez. So this next one comes with a trigger warning and does involve a baby. So if that is triggering to you, just mute the audio for about a minute and then come back. Warning you right now. Here it goes. In 1944, 19-year-old Dorothy Jean Purcell was staying at the Cecil Hotel with her boyfriend, Ben Levine. Dorothy had been pregnant, but somehow Ben was unaware of the pregnancy. One night, she went into labor and didn't want to wake Ben and delivered a baby boy in the bathroom. Dorothy thought that the baby was dead, and threw the newborn out the window where it had landed on the roof of a neighboring building. Dorothy was found not guilty due to insanity. Okay, just give me a minute. That one's heavy. Okay. The murders have never ceased during the time the Cecil Hotel has been standing. And I think as long as that building remains, the bodies will just keep piling. It's branded and stained with blood. Its violent past will continue to draw in those seeking to do harm to others. In an area that they can just go unnoticed for long periods of time. Next up, I'm going to talk about the bizarre deaths and just some of the deaths that have happened at the Cecil Hotel that are not from suicide or murder, allegedly. First up is Elizabeth Short, aka the Black Dahlia. She reportedly had visited the Cecil Hotel shortly before she disappeared and eventually was found in Lemark Park in Los Angeles. Elizabeth Short was said to have been seen drinking at a bar with someone at the Cecil Hotel that became a possible suspect in the case of her murder. And Elizabeth Short was only 22 at the time of her murder. But even though the claims that she had visited the Cecil Hotel, there is no definite proof and you know it's kind of just dismissed that she ever visited that hotel in the first place and now we have arrived at the most insane story in this hotel's history the death of elisa lamb it shocked la county when the 21 year old vanished from the hotel so in 2013 the hotel was rebranded as the stay on main which didn't change its horrible reputation This event perhaps sealed the hotel's fate permanently as the deadliest and strangest hotel. Elisa Lam was a 21-year-old Chinese-Canadian student that had been traveling. 
Lamb kept an extensive blog on Tumblr that she would update regularly. She even updated it with posts about her travels. She stayed in San Diego from January 22nd to the 27th before heading up the coast to LA. She checked into the hotel on January 28th, 2013. Lam was first staying with other girls, but that ended quickly when they reported her strange behavior and left notes on their beds and around the room telling the other girls to get out or go home. Lam was then moved to her own room the day before she disappeared. Days before her disappearance, Lam had attended a live film production of a TV show and exhibited the same strange behavior that was reported by her roommates. She had written a letter to the host of the show and demanded security to deliver the letter, but instead they removed her from the building. Another one of her adventures took her downtown to the last bookstore where she purchased some books. It was kind of like everyone that ran into her had experienced this sort of strange behavior that she was exhibiting. It was also reported that she had screamed in the lobby, I am crazy and so is LA. But then the most famous part of her case is a video that shows Lamb acting very strange while inside the hotel's elevator. She was repeatedly pressing the buttons, walking in and out of the elevator, speaking to someone that was out of frame or perhaps not even there at all and even possibly hiding from someone or something. Now the floor that Lamb was staying on, which was the fifth floor, did not have any security footage, so it's impossible to see any activity from that perspective. Oddly though, no other footage from that night was ever found. Lamb was reported missing on February 1st, 2013. Police interviewed staff, and one maintenance staff member told police that they saw Lamb wandering in an employee-only area and was told to leave. Police then started looking into the highly dangerous area of Skid Row. Initially, it was thought that Lamb ran away or got lost in the area, which are equally as dangerous. They started to suspect homicide and comb the area for any sort of clues that could lead them to finding Elisa Lamb, hopefully alive. Their search brought them to the last bookstore, and later detectives that reviewed the footage spotted Lamb walking into the hotel with two men carrying a box. The one handed Lamb the box and the two left. They scrubbed through the footage looking to see if the two men ever returned to the hotel, in which they didn't. Police searched Lamb's room for any sort of clue or sort of struggle that would suggest foul play, but even that turned up nothing. But what they did discover was that Lamb left behind all of her possessions, clothes, prescriptions, her laptop that she used for blogging, and the box. They looked inside the box and found that it contained the books that were purchased at the last bookstore. The case had rocked LA County as it did the world. Amateur sleuths took to the case as the elevator footage of Lamb went viral. Detectives that reviewed the footage came to the conclusion that Elisa never left the building. She had to be around the hotel somewhere. They searched rooms, closets, any nook and cranny imaginable. They brought in search dogs and had it pick up her scent. The dog led them to a window on the 14th floor where the fire escape was. The fire escape went in two directions. To the street and to the roof just above that floor. 
The detective searched the roof along with the dog, but no luck turning up with Elisa Lamb. The case went dry and stalled as no further clues were presented. 19 days after Elisa Lamb disappeared, guests began to notice the water pressure was extremely low, and what water did manage to squeeze out of those pipes had a brown tint and a foul odor to it. More guests reported the same thing, so the hotel maintenance went to the roof to check the water cistern and found the lid off and Elisa's body floating in the tank. She had been floating face up, naked and in a moderate state of decomposition. This had been after guests were using the water. I'm talking about drinking, showering, and cooking, brushing their teeth with this water. It's a mystery how she ended up in the water tank at all because the hotel maintenance, security, and even general manager claimed the door had a lock as well as an alarm that would have sounded had anyone have opened that door. Maintenance then informed the manager who then called her mom to let her know that something bad had happened at the hotel. Then she notified the LAPD afterwards. The building was then swarmed by police, detectives, and other emergency personnel. They opened the tank lid and confirmed it was missing Elisa Lamb. So now that raises the question of who did it. Was it a murder? Was it suicide? First, they had to get the body out of the tank. Lifting it out was out of the question, so they had to drain the tank and cut a hole in the side to pull the body out. Investigators continued to look for clues in the hotel to rule out any possible foul play. In the meantime, the coroner went to work determining what the body showed. The state of decomposition proved difficult for the coroner and the results were inconclusive. What was definite was that she had not been raped from a rape kit results and that her toxicology results came back showing fewer medications in her system than what she had been prescribed for. Meanwhile, in her room amongst the possessions, police found that she had more medication in the bottles than what she should have had if she was taking them consistently. Elisa's sister Sarah had told police that Elisa suffered from bipolar disorder and had to be hospitalized in the past for psychotic episodes. She would sometimes have delusions and paranoia during these episodes and was afraid that someone was trying to get her or harm her. She would hear voices and sometimes hide under a bed or hide under something, anything that she could. Police were then certain that it was her disorder that was the cause and ruled it as an accident when it had been deemed inconclusive for four months before the final results came in June of 2013. People were not convinced though. They needed more proof. Questions like why was she naked came up a lot and police ruled that the clothes could have been weighing her down as she tried to tread water and remove them or even hypothermia. When someone has severe hypothermia and is extremely disoriented and confused, they can experience what is known as paradoxical undressing that needless to say leads to more heat loss. A year prior to Elisa Lamb staying at the hotel, Pablo Vergara, a metal musician known as Morbid, stayed at the hotel. During his stay at the hotel, Pablo Vergara filmed a video of himself while inside his room documenting his stay at the hotel. Morbid's music is known for lyrics of death and murder. I mean, come on, it's a metal band. However, 
people caught wind of Pablo's stay and looked at his stuff online. One of his music videos depicts a woman running for her life to end up being murdered, and one of his song lyrics talked about a Chinese girl dying in water. So these internet sleuths were convinced that Morbid left clues that he killed Elisa Lam. Pablo had started to receive death threats and comments from people telling him to admit to killing her. Pablo then made a response video as his stage character, Morbid, hiding his face and disguising his voice, telling people he was innocent. This may not have been the best response, hiding your face and voice, but the guy was innocent and he was afraid because of the threats. Then the police in Mexico showed up at Pablo's house asking if he had made any ritualistic sacrifices of animals or anything else. Pablo was never actually a suspect to the LAPD. His alibi was too great, seeing as how he stayed at the hotel a year prior to Lamb's stay and that he was in Mexico at the time of her death. Hey, this is Matt from the Strangely Podcast. I love to support local businesses, and I would like to tell you a little bit about Gigi's Gourmet, but first, some backstory. I am absolutely not a fan of hard pretzels. Soft pretzels, sure, but I would never go for hard pretzels when having a snack attack. That was until I tried Gigi's Gourmet pretzels. Gigi's Gourmet pretzels are home-produced in Utah, and I think they perfected their recipe of the sourdough. It's amazing, and the seasoning they are dressed with is just out of this world. The garlic and herb is perfectly balanced, and right now, they have my favorite flavor, Chipotle Ranch in mild, medium, and my personal favorite, Hot Hot. I like to snack on these pretzels while I am writing content for the Strangely Podcast or for social media, but Gigi's could be just what you need as the perfect snack to complement any party, sporting event, or movie night. The resealable bags make them a great snack to take pretty much anywhere. This company and their products are great. And I could go on and on about this company, but I will let the pretzels speak for themselves. You can find them at www.ggspretzels.com. Now back to the show. Moving on now, I always thought that the video surveillance of Elisa Lam was in the lobby, but after watching the Netflix documentary and that guy points out that it was the 14th floor, I watched the video over and over, zoomed in, and I couldn't tell if she had in fact pressed 14. It would make sense though if she was on the 14th floor and the elevator would just stay at that floor. She does press one of the floors before hitting the door hold button, which the guy says would keep the doors from closing for two minutes. I guess either way, it doesn't really matter what floor she is on because regardless, she made it to the roof. Reviewing the footage, like a lot of people, I too spotted a lot of red flags. First, it's the missing or cut frames. People say it's an entire 53 seconds of missing footage. Next is the obvious timestamp issue with it being completely illegible. And then if you look in the bottom left of the frame as Elisa is exiting the elevator, you can see either a frame that had been cut or a reflection of a shoe that was not Elisa's. Who in the fuck did that shoe belong to? More accurately, whose fucking foot was that? Was someone standing outside the elevator keeping it open so Elisa couldn't go anywhere? 
If you remember that quote from the former resident at the beginning, he said he wouldn't go past the sixth floor because that is where people got murdered, was on those upper floors. It would absolutely make sense for there to be some scary asshole up there that would just be messing around with a young woman, plus take advantage of her already delicate state. Was Elisa having a psychotic episode and talking to no one, or was someone actually standing off camera that was messing with the elevator? It's impossible to know, but given the circumstances, it's just odd that she is seemingly talking to someone, and clearly hiding from someone that she feels may be a threat, and the illegible timestamp on the footage and the glimpse of the shoe? It's just odd. And these little inconsistencies really add up to there being someone else that was involved. Now let's say that she did climb into the water tank and got stuck. It's hard to say how long Lamb treaded water for, but usually a person can tread water for 4 hours, sometimes up to 10 if they are in great shape. One could extend that time by floating on their back, but eventually... You know, we all need sleep, and once that exhaustion sets in, it's easy to drown. Given Lamb's potential mental state at the time, you could suggest there could have been a lot of struggle and panic once realizing she was stuck. That would burn up a lot of energy. With hypothermia setting in, Lamb would be losing a lot of heat that would make her become more delusional and confused, further burning up energy till she became so exhausted that she passed out. The other thing I find strange is the delay in the autopsy report. Like many, I feel that the autopsy report should have been released far sooner than it was. People started to come up with conspiracy theories that pointed fingers at the hotel staff and claimed that they had a hand in Elisa Lam's death. Other groups blamed the LAPD for having a hand in it, claiming that the LAPD was covering up for something. I am not a conspiracy theorist, however, their claims are quite believable to an extent, although I truly don't buy into them. The autopsy and toxicology report actually took four months to be released and people still didn't believe the results that were given. If you'd like to take a look at those results, just google Elisa Lam autopsy results and you can download the PDF file copy of the actual file. One problem that skeptics had was that the final result of death had been changed from inconclusive to accidental within a matter of days. 6-15-2013, it was marked as accidental, and on 6-18-2013, it was marked as could not be determined with the box scribbled out and error written underneath of it. But that wasn't the only error that was made that made skeptics question the police. On February 19th, when Lamb's body was found, an officer of the LAPD said live on television that, to his understanding, when they made it to the roof, the lid of the water tank had been closed. Well, if you remember, the maintenance guy said that he found it open. Now, in the Netflix documentary, a retired detective says that information got crossed, and even though the lid was actually off, Someone got it mixed up, and the officer said it was closed. An honest mistake, as the detective puts it. 
But that's just it. With this line of work and given the severity of this case, there's very little room for error. And it should be something that the entire investigative team should be briefed on before making anything public. It's not just to keep them out of the line of fire from skeptics and conspiracy theorists, but I think that they owe that to the family to get all the facts straight before making any sort of statements. Now, as far as the lid being said to have been on, that raised a lot of questions on the internet that if Elisa did climb into the water tank, then how in the hell could she have put the lid back on? Even if the water level had been high, it still would have been a far stretch, too far even for her to reach out of the water and put the lid on. And as the water had been getting used, the levels would have gone down, making it entirely impossible to grab the lid from within the tank. Let's say that she did climb into the tank, and after a couple days, maintenance went up to the roof to give everything a once-over and noticed that the lid was off and put it back on. They would have noticed her body floating in the water then. So, who put that lid on? Well, police did report that the lid was off when they got to the roof. And that one officer just got his information crossed. Detectives had also searched the roof with a canine and found nothing. Was this another error? Or was her body placed there after the detectives made a sweep of the roof? That really depends on the side that you believe. The skeptics amateur sleuths and conspiracy theorists or the LAPD. Perhaps we will never really know all the facts behind this story. There could be more to this case than what we are led to believe. I think this is the main reason that this case has interested people all over the world because it is a case that had so many variables and avenues for one to explore that it almost became a real life murder mystery. And some people were just consumed by this story that they spent the better part of the weeks leading up to her finding trying to solve this case. Now, something that we have to remember, though, is that this was a real person. She had a family. She had friends. She had people that cared about her. Even the online community cared for her and hoped for her safe return. I feel like with true crime, we get so wrapped up in the details about the case that we almost forget the victim or victims, even their families. It's something that the family has to live with for the rest of their lives. And as much pain as it is not knowing all the facts or settling for what result was given, it's harder on the families not knowing what truly happened or all the what ifs that would be going on through their minds. True crime is a heavy, heavy topic. And there are a lot of things that we could get caught up in while looking into the case. Sometimes we just need to take a step back and remember that this was a real person. Now moving on from the true crime and mystery, uh, I have touched on this game in a previous episode titled This Episode is Curse, but I'd like to bring it up again. People that believe in the paranormal and that the Cecil Hotel has some sort of paranormal happenings inside of it believe that Lamb had been playing this game. If you would like to hear all the specifics, I suggest you listen to my previous episode highlighting this game. If you watch the video, you notice Lamb pushing a series of buttons even though the elevator is not moving. She looks as if she is afraid and hiding from someone till she steps out of the elevator and begins with her bizarre 
hand movements, seemingly speaking to someone that's out of the view of the camera. Lam briefly steps back into the elevator before stepping back out and walking to the left down the hall and out of frame. The video continues without Lam for another minute or so, but in that time you see the frame jump like a jump cut and even the illegible timestamp makes the small jump in numbers from what you can make out. People have come to the conclusion that 53 seconds are missing from the video and right at that jump cut, the elevator doors close without a problem. Something Lam could not get the elevator to do while she was on board. You see the elevator doors open and close, then open again before the footage ends. Now, I'm not one to throw out ghosts as a likely cause to this creepy footage, but there are those that would tell you that sinister spirits run amok inside the Cecil. Lamb could have picked up this legend, or even could have picked up the story of the elevator game while staying with those girls and decided to play it for herself. To catch you up to speed, the elevator game is a game where you can ride an elevator to different floors to reach the other world. You have to go to certain levels for the game to work, and there are some other rules that you have to follow in order to survive this game. I can't say for sure that I believe Lamb had been playing this game or that I really believe in the game myself, but what I can say is that when I first seen this footage, and if I'm being honest, was not until January of 2021, unless I had seen it before and I just don't really remember, but it scared the absolute hell out of me. Whatever was going on with her, whether paranormal or psychotic episode, I would not have wanted to be around her. And two, I immediately thought of this game, not thinking that she had to have been playing this game, but I did see the connections one could draw. However, there are inconsistencies that don't really coincide with the game at all. The game goes from floor 1 to floor 10, and if she was on floor 14, she wouldn't be playing the game. Because the game really only involves 10 floors, and there is no going past the 10th floor unless you consider the other world past the 10th floor. But the button pressing does fit with the game, and her talking to someone that is either not there or that we can't see or someone that is out of frame, well, in the game, that would be a definite no-no. Just listen to that episode, listen to the rules of the elevator game, and you would understand exactly what I'm talking about. There is supposed to be someone that boards the elevator with you on the fifth floor and you're not supposed to talk to them, otherwise bad things happen. And Lamb was talking to someone in the video, and something bad happened. So yeah, I can see why people would say that she had been playing this game, but there are also just some things that suggest she was not playing the game. And so, wrapping up that episode, this one was heavy. Yeah heavy. I was actually really, really excited to do this one because I have wanted to do it for a very long time. 
And, you know, this hotel, I'm, I'm not really one to be afraid of things, but this hotel scares the fucking shit out of me. But even though it scares me, I'm still drawn to it. I'm still fascinated by the story. Hell, I even looked into staying there. Yeah, staying there just to see what I experience and being able to talk about it and make some content about it and deliver it to my followers, whether on this podcast or on Instagram. But I just could not get past all that other shit that comes with staying at that hotel. Besides, Pablo Vergara said that that hotel is bad luck, pretty much. That bad things do come from that hotel. Bad things happen. In a way, I I think he is right because people who stay there have died. People that have stayed there have been endlessly down on their luck. They're stuck in that area of the city that doesn't give a shit about them. And then Pablo's case. I mean, he was blamed for murder that he didn't even commit. And it has ruined his life. He stopped putting out music. He stopped being social. It screwed him up for life. I mean, he has to live with that. And there are some people out there who still think that he did commit that murder. But how do you convince them otherwise? There is some obvious satanic panic and there's no convincing those people that someone who is interested in death and who views death in a beautiful way such as his character morbid is and the type of music there's there's just no convincing those people that he didn't do it there's just no way i mean there have been plenty of other cases some i mean within the last 40 years of satanic panic that people just go ape shit over and they start just pointing fingers at the wrong people and it just furthers the the case in a different direction but pretty much what i'm saying is that blaming the wrong person just takes you further away from the truth so now heading out i would like to give a shout out to the entertainment junkies these three guys are holding it down austin brandon and braxton You know, they're bringing the news regarding your entertainment needs on the latest movies, TV shows, and video games. Every Monday is Movie Monday, and every Friday is Video Game Friday. This podcast is super awesome, and these guys are just super real in their movie reviews, video game reviews, you know, whatever they're reviewing. It's an honest opinion. So definitely check out their show wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I'd really like to thank you for listening to the Strangely Podcast. Thank you for being with me for this long. Thank you for being with me for the entire month and a week I took off. This time that I took off to 
really work on the quality of content that I am delivering on this podcast and on Instagram. And, you know, I hope that when I start these other projects that you will follow them as well because they're what I am passionate about as with this podcast. These other projects are what I want to do in life. And I'm hoping that you can support me in that as well. And if you would like to connect with me, you can connect on Instagram at Strangely Podcast. You know, and you can support me on Buy Me a Coffee as well. Um, just find me. It's buymeacoffee.com slash strangely pod. And you can support this podcast. It really helps. Anything that you can contribute really does help support this show. And, you know, helps me keep delivering content. And, you know, another great way that you can show your support for this podcast is to share it with a friend, a family member. Share it with five friends. Share it with five family members. Share my social media. You know, that all really helps for exposure to this show. This show is really my passion. This is my stage. This is my art. And to be able to share that with others is just the best. But that has been all for now. This has been the Strangely Podcast. See ya.